Hi there. Hello. I'm Murphy Robinson. And I'm Ari Earlbaum. I teach hunting and archery for a living. And I've never hunted in my life, but I'm curious. On this show, we're going to interview hunters of all genders to explore all sorts of perspectives on hunting, our relationship to our prey, and the wildness within ourselves. Welcome to the Hunters Podcast. And there was that crunching sound in the forest from where they come from. I was like, oh my god, it's gonna be a buck. To me, it sounded like the whole forest sighed. Hi, we're back. Hey everyone. It has been a while. Um, we last posted an episode in October 2018, almost two, a little over two years ago. Like two and a half years ago. Yeah, two and a half years ago was when I recorded that interview. Um, and so in the meantime, we've been busy. Um, I did a year-long wilderness sabbatical focusing on wild food and canoeing in Minnesota and on the Northern Forest Canoe Trail. And Ari got to come and visit us and do uh, wild rice harvest with us in Minnesota. It was pretty awesome. It was awesome. Ari and I pulled each other around in a canoe in a rice lake like gondoliers. It was very amusing. Um, and then by the time I got back, Ari was in the midst of finishing his bachelor's degree um, with a focus on audio documentary, which you are clearly already very good at. So <laughs> now it's official on paper. Um, so we're ju- we were just getting back into the swing of things, and then the COVID pandemic hit, and life got a little unpredictable and stressful for a while. But uh, now, um, in the midst of the you know winter of big COVID wave, uh, we're we're using some of our at home time to do some remote podcasting work together over Zoom. So here we are again. We're back. Yay! We are excited to share this episode with you. Um, this is a cross post actually from another podcast called the Reverend Hunter podcast that Murphy was interviewed on. Um, And we've got one other episode that we're just about done with, um, which should be coming your way soon after this. I'm really excited for both of these episodes. Um, this this first one um, that we're cross-posting from Tony's podcast, Tony reached out to me for an interview. He is a Christian minister and a hunter, and he really, like a lot of his audience is Christian as well, but he was really excited to have a lot of different types of people represented on his podcast. Um, so he reached out to me and... Um, you'll see that we kind of spend a lot of time talking about my gender identity and my spiritual upbringing in the beginning of the podcast, um, which I agreed that we could talk about. I told him that was fine. Um, and one thing that you'll learn on there is that I'm now using they pronouns, so a lot can change in two years. So, um, are we cool still calling this the Huntress podcast? Or do we call it like the Hunt, Huntricks podcast or something like that? And that little X ending is very, very fashionable these days, isn't like it? Like Latinx or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, as my own gender identity continues to evolve, I do kind of like revisit this Huntress word that is really like been something I've used to represent my work for a lot of years now. Um, And I still think of this hunting work as huntress work, mostly because of like the archetype of the huntress points us to 
like reciprocity and a real presence and a gratitude in our hunting practices. I feel like a lot of people, when they hear the word huntress, they think of a really different approach um, and kind of a different emotional stance towards the hunt. And so it doesn't have as much to do with like the identity of the hunter as how we hunt. So I don't know, maybe I'll find some more nuanced language for it at some point. But right now I'm still calling my work the, the huntress work. Okay, well, thanks to Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, for letting us cross-post this interview, and I'm excited. It's really enlightening and adorable, and um, let's listen to it. (laughs) All right, full steam ahead. Hey, Murphy, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to start... First of all, by acknowledging um, that uh, acknowledging that I think it takes some courage for somebody like you to come on a podcast with a you know cisgendered white guy PhD in theology because I will say that people like me have not often been super cool to people like you. Oh, so no, I realize that, it's probably. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm I, I I'm sure it's seems somewhat vulnerable to put yourself out there to somebody who comes, you know, from a different perspective. So I just want to acknowledge that. Thank you for that, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I I, I don't know if I'd think of it as uh, taking courage exactly because um, you know it's the water we swim in in this country. It's very normal and everyday. Um, but I think it takes a certain amount of um, just faith in humanity and and generosity and willing to believe that other people have your best uh, best intentions in mind even when they uh don't always you know understand your experience so but i'm, I'm happy to be here and and chat over the things that we have in common because i think there's a lot of them i think so too yeah first of all I'd, i would love for you to tell me um Tell me about what you're looking at right now. Where are you in, in your tiny house in central Vermont? Um, I, I'm very close to my tiny house in central Vermont. I actually have a little office in uh, an outbuilding that I have now. So I'm uh, on the second floor overlooking a really beautiful running stream, this brook that goes through the mm. property that I live on. Um, and out the window, I can see my tiny house, which I built for myself, uh, seven years ago now and have been living in ever since. It's a very sweet little home. Uh, but the, yeah, the internet reception is better in the, in the office. So I'm over here today. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you have some great photos on your website, mountainsongexpeditions.com of the inside of your tiny house. And it seems to me you use every every inch of wall space it looks like for the photos yeah most of it has hanging from it that's what i'm like you can really tell someone's priorities from what they like how they arrange their tiny house because space is at a premium so you don't have room for anything superficial um so yeah yeah, a lot of cooking equipment hanging from the ceiling and a lot of bows and arrows hanging from the walls is kind of what it looks like in there And you got a couple of huge pots because, of course, you're, a, you know, obviously cooking up wild game and probably rendering fat and canning and doing all sorts of stuff like that. So that must take a bunch of yeah, um, yeah. space as well. Just, all, yeah, all your Definitely. cooking implements. I'm cooking uh, venison stew for my classes and the students that come here and stuff like that. Yeah, I managed to, to churn a lot out nice. of a five foot wide kitchen. So I'm pretty proud of that. Um. 
you grew up as a vegetarian in Ooh. a in a yeah in a house that was practicing i i guess i've heard you refer to it as kind of a new age type house your parents yeah my parents met in the transcendental meditation movement and they've each practiced transcendental meditation twice a day for gosh uh probably 39 to 40 years now um since mm. before i was born and um yeah, they had a lot of new age beliefs. They were really into the age of enlightenment, the coming age of enlightenment. I really think we haven't quite gotten there yet, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> the world's looking a little scary right now. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Are are they still doing that? They definitely are. Yeah, they are very, very steady people. They found a thing they liked and they stuck with it. Um, and it hasn't exactly been my path, but I think it was actually a really wonderful culture to grow up in. I was surrounded by people who were really based in compassion and love and wishing peace for the world. And we're mostly managing to run their personal lives along those values as well. And so that was a blessing. Um, I'd love to hear more of your story, but before, before that, I would like to, and I, I want to confess too, that it's something that I think is harder for pe- me and people like me who come from, you know, the more kind of dominant identity groups in the uh, in our culture right now is I I would love to hear you tell me how you identify and even the pronouns that you would like me and others to use and maybe explain a little bit of your journey in that way. I want to, I guess, uh, you know, People like me don't have to do that. We don't spend time saying, well, let me explain to you my identity as a cisgendered white man who lives in the suburbs and likes to hunt. That's, that's you know, I, I kind of take it for granted that people see me or interact with me and, and they understand that right off the bat. But I don't, I shouldn't take that for granted. And I, I don't want to take that for granted in our conversation. So I'd love to hear you reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, And I'd say my identity is definitely something that has evolved over my lifetime. And I have no doubt it will continue to evolve. Um, Just when I think I have things figured out, I discover new things about myself, which keeps life interesting. Um, But I identify as, let's see, the the word I've been resonating with the most lately is a transmasculine person. Um, I'm not sure I would consider myself a trans man um, exactly, but I have a lot of masculine energy. I used to identify as a butch lesbian, um, but now it's maybe a little more non-binary in that way. But I kind of don't like that word non-binary because I don't like defining myself about what I'm not. Um, So Hmm. they pronouns are really comfortable for me, but I get called all kinds of things on a regular basis. My gender presentation (laughs) is fairly androgynous and... Uh, you know, I don't mind when people call me she. I'm very used to that from earlier parts of my life. Um, and I find it delightful and amazing when people call me he and they is just a, a comfortable, neutral pronoun that's maybe the most convenient for like professional settings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So transmasculine, I guess, it, it help me with that. That means that, um, well, yeah. I don't want to step in any landmine. So I'd love for you to explain a little bit what that means to you, transmasculine. Totally. So um, I think that the transgender identity has become much more broad in recent decade or so. Um, it, It used to feel a lot more like if you were transgender, then like 
you had a binary identity and you were a man or a woman and you mm-hmm. were maybe going to like have surgery and take hormones and um, try to like pass in society as the, identi- the gender that you identify with in, in certain ways. And um, the, the trans community these days has a lot of room for shades of gray around that. Um, and so I like the word transmasculine because it conveys that um, I do have like uh, a fairly masculine presence and energy. That's the feedback I get from people when I ask them how, how they experience me. Um, and I enjoy a lot of, um, you know, masculine, traditionally masculine pursuits, which I don't think need to be masculine at all, um, such as hunting and building my own house and things like that. Um, but then I have that trans experience of being assigned female at birth and being socialized as a woman in this culture and, you know, trained into ways of like, being nice and diffusing conflict and, and all the ways that we train mm-hmm. r- women to act in this culture that are maybe like less bold and confident than is rewarded for males in, when, when we're young. And so I have mm-hmm. an experience, you know, an, an empathy for the, the culture that comes out of that for people that are socialized female and an experience of that that's very personal, even though it's maybe not um, the set of behaviors that feels most true to me now that I'm like an adult and I get to determine my own identity at a new level. Um, as I give myself all the options. Does that make sense? And, and is the word, it, yeah, no, that's super helpful. Is the word queer a word that you also use or resonate with or used to use or anything like that? Yes, I definitely identify with the word queer. Um, yeah, that, that describes me as well. And I think, I mean, I'd love to hear just a few seconds on that because I, I do think, I think I understand the word queer and I have a lot of queer friends, but then like recently my mom said to me, <laughs> she's like, but what's queer? I like explained and I couldn't articulate it really. And I <laughs> yeah. kind of fell into this non-binary, you know, sexuality is more fluid, that kind of language, but I don't know that that's really right. And of course I'm not speaking out of my own experience either. So uh, can you expound on that word for a second? Yeah, man, queer is a tricky word. There are a lot of queer people that have a lot yeah, of really strong yeah. opinions, so I hope I don't get myself in trouble. But um, yeah, queer has often been used as an umbrella term covering, you know, the LGBTQIA plus community. I don't, there's probably more letters on that now. I can't keep up. Um, but uh, so it's sort of a identity where we can all come together and acknowledge that even if like a gay man and a lesbian woman don't have a whole lot of shared culture in their friend groups or their dating practices necessarily, like they still have the experience of being like homosexual in America, which is its own thing. Um, and so queer is sort of an overarching mm-hmm. thing there. And it, and it recognizes that things are not binary. And, you know, for someone like me, who's transmasculine, is it really lesbian for me to date a woman when I feel a lot of gender polarity between me and a lot of the women that I've dated? And like, we feel like we have very different genders in a lot of ways. Um, or would it be more mm-hmm. queer for me to date a cis man? Cause I'm dating someone who has energy more like myself. Um, so the word queer, like lets me escape some of those like weird circles <laughs> you get into and gender sure. becomes non-binary and, yeah. uh, but just express that I am not a straight person. All right. Well, I really appreciate that. And I think if, you know, if listeners are like, wow, that was quite a 10 minute journey 
Uh, I think we're going to go in an even more interesting path right now when I ask you, how do you identify religiously at the moment? Oh, okay. Gosh. Um, well, I identify as pagan. Um, and uh, by that, I mean that I follow a, um, a non-Christian tradition inspired by pre-Christian traditions, uh, especially those practiced by my ancestors, who mostly are from Northern Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And so I looked, you know, I was a medieval studies major in college, and I've studied some of the ancient languages and the, the old poetry from pre-Christian times or, or recently Christianized times in the Middle Ages. Um, and I try to look back to a time when the spirituality of my ancestors was really inspired by the earth itself. Um, and where hmm. the deities and spirit beings that were important to pray to or make offerings to and be in right relationship were, uh, inspired by the landscape and the climate and the animals that they hunted and, um, those beings that were very immediate um, so, you know, beyond monotheism, I, I consider myself a polytheist. Um, and I, I sometimes use the word, witch. Uh, often not when I'm talking to people, like I imagine your audience to be, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> right, within, right. within the pagan community, uh, the word, witch has really been reclaimed as someone who gives themselves a lot of spiritual agency, um, to try and, uh, use prayer or forms of prayer that we call spell work, which I consider a form of embodied and okay. like intentional prayer to um, try and fight for justice in our lives and in the worlds and um, try and find ways to build relationships and meet our needs that are sustainable and good. Um, and I also, I actually run a little, a spirituality circle for p people who want to dive into this kind of path uh, called way of the weaver. And we've started using the word weaver as a like gender neutral word for witch or priestess because we have people of all genders in our program. Okay. Okay. So I also, also identify yeah. as a weaver, but only like 20 people in the world know what that means in the way that I'm using it. So it's not useful in this context. Probably. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's probably, it's sometimes helpful. I, I know that's on your website, the way of the weaver. Um, it is sometimes helpful to strike out with your own uh, terminology because it allows you to define it a little bit and not, have it defined against you because a word like witch obviously has all sorts of cultural baggage that comes with it definitely and surely not the kind of stuff you most often are you know resonate with um did you used to be did you used to be more wicca and you've moved into more of a pagan spirituality is that am i right about that I think that my spirituality has been pretty steady, but the words that I use have changed a little bit. So I, okay. Okay. at first Wicca was like what I was able to find in the culture it was like books on Wicca in the nineties. And so I identified with that word. Um, and uh, as I've learned more about the culture of Wicca specifically, it's, it's, um, I feel like it actually has a, a lot of overlays left over from Christianity and it's actually not very well historically researched. And a fair amount of it was like made up by this one guy in England, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, mm. So I've, I've, and I feel like Wicca tends to be a very like gender binary type tradition. There's a lot of focus on like the Lord and lady oh, and masculine and feminine energy. <laughs> and I think that nature is much more complicated okay. than that. Um, and I yeah. want to be in harmony with the nature around me. So 
that's a word that I've moved away from, but it's a, it was a starting place for me. And I think it's still a starting place for plenty of folks. Another word that people are using these days that I'm really warming up to more and more is the word animist. Um, and, you know, oh, animist okay. is the, are the anthropological term for cultures that see everything as alive with a spirit, like the rocks are, have a spirit and the stars have a spirit and the trees have a spirit. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of indigenous uh, traditions, both in North, North America and around the world, are classified as animist traditions. And um, yeah. me and a lot of the people in my community and my friends sort of identify with that word animist of really, um, really trying deliberately to kind of like re-enchant our lives and reanimate the world around us and like talk to the trees, talk to the deer, talk to the stream. And I think a lot of people actually do that instinctively, especially when they're children. Um, but I'm we're sort of reclaiming that type of consciousness because once you build relationship with all of the beings around you, I think it really diffuses the like overconsumption impulse that we have in our culture. That's really hurting the environment um, because you're not Mm going to just like see a tree as board feet. You know, maybe you will decide to cut down that tree. I've, I've cut plenty of trees on my land for firewood and for building materials. But each time I cut a tree, I like have a conversation with that tree and um, I, I let that tree know like why I'm cutting it and what the intention is and what the higher purpose is that it serves um, in my life and my work in the world. Yeah. And it's, so it's not something that I do lightly. I just don't run around with my chainsaw like a mad person and cut it all to, to get dollars out of it. Um, so that's kind of the benefit I see in animism in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I went on a, an elk hunt last October in Colorado with a friend of mine named Seth. and. She, um, similarly, she does a lot of foraging and she has all sorts of wild vinegars that she's fermenting and uh, just from stuff she's found. I mean, she jokes about just like finding stuff in ditches along the side of the road and things like that. But she was really schooling me in this idea of asking permission Mm. of the, you know, of the plant or the weed before picking it. And I asked her and I'll ask you the same question. Like, how do you know if, if that tree says no, what, what's your, because here I'm obviously I'm coming from this more traditional Christian background of which I have like all sorts of doubts, doubts higher than, uh, you know, more than I could even catalog about that tradition and all sorts of doubts, even in the Christian tradition about people who speak so confidently of God talking to them, you know, like the Lord told Mm -hmm. me to do this and the Lord told me to do that. And I'm, I tend to be very skeptical of that kind of language. And I'm, I guess I'm similarly skeptical, but open to learning about how would a tree or for that matter how would a how would a deer say no i'm not the deer for you to take this year like how how does that transaction com- communication transaction take place between you and the other creature yeah yeah how do you know it's not all in your head that's a great question yeah um yeah. and first i'd like to say that if it is all in my head i still think it's useful um i still think that sure. approaching the world in that relational way is useful but I do happen to believe that it's not all in my head. Um, and I, I love the question of, of looking at it with a tree and looking at it with a deer. Um, uh, I can tell a couple of stories about that. I, um, with the trees on my land, I sort of am in this ongoing kind of contemplation of them and like, well, does that one need to go? Or like, what, what do I need to harvest? What is, what is the actual need? 
uh, which ones are healthy, which ones aren't. So there is that sort of ecological consciousness. But in that mm-hmm. in that moment, I'll I'll you know, lay my hand on the side of the tree, and I'm there with my chainsaw and my chaps on and my helmet and everything. So like clearly, I'm intending to cut this tree. Um, but I'll lay my hand on it and really just like talk to it for a while and explain why I'm why I'm taking it down. Um, and there's there's an old belief from from Europe. Um, I've I, I'm, this is not incredibly well researched for me. I don't know where it came from, but I've heard both the Greek dryad tradition and the like English woodcutter tradition had um, elements of this. But there's a tradition where the okay. dryad, who is the tree spirit of a whole grove of trees, that if you tell the tree you're going to cut the tree, the dryad can move to another tree in the grove because she tends like the whole grove. And so I have a practice hmm. of, of asking the tree spirit to to move to another tree so it would continue to tend and, and protect that place. Um, and I, sometimes I feel like I can really feel it. Sometimes it just sort of feels neutral. And as long as I'm not feeling like a bad feeling or like a negative, heavy feeling, um, I, I think that that's fine. Um, but I know I, I, I led a class where we, we spent a whole week working up to felling one tree with an ax and really being in relationship with this tree. And we all laid our hands on it and explained things to it one day. And the next day we came back in the same hour of the day and we laid our hands on it again. And every single person in the class, like almost jumped with surprise because the tree felt so much less alive than it had the day before. And it's hard to put that in words that like make sense over yeah. a podcast, but um, it just, it felt like, you know, when you, when you put your hand on a healthy tree, it just feels like it's buzzing with energy. It's got this like green vibrancy to it. And it just felt blank to us. And we all looked at each mm. other and like, wow. I think the dryad moved out of the tree, you know? <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. it was, it was very, you know, usually I don't do it one day and then come back the next day. I'm not quite as uh, spacious about it as I was being for this class. And that really taught me a lot. And with deer, we, we talk about the same thing in the classes that I teach. Um, I, I do a lot of teaching and guiding for, uh, for marginalized genders. So that includes women and queer people, non-binary people. Um, and, uh, we talk a lot about what, how to know whether that deer is your deer. And similar with, with the tree, I, f- I feel like you just, you have this feeling in your heart. And if you're tuned into your own emotional life, you're going to know. And if you're someone who has to go through your days really numbed to your own emotional life to get through what you have to face in your life, it's going to be harder to feel that. Um, and I think yeah. a lot of people in our culture are pretty numbed out. Um, but if you've put in the time to be in touch with yourself and to be in relationship with the, with the nature beings around you, the trees and the stones, the deer, um, you will have a feeling. And, um, we also, I I do a prayer every time that I go out to hunt and I encourage my students to do it as well. Um, and it's a hut, a prayer like to, to the, the deer in the forest and here in Vermont, it's bucks only season. So, um, the prayer would be something like, um, you know, dear, dear bucks who lives in this forest, you know, I call to you if there's any buck who in this forest, who is willing to sacrifice himself for the good of the herd this winter, who's willing to leave more food in the forest for those he leaves behind, who wants to die as cleanly as I can give that death, and who wants to be prayed over and have his story told every time his meat is served and eaten, may that buck come to me. And if that buck is not in the forest today, if there is no buck with those wishes and that willingness in the forest today, may no buck come to me. And to Hmm. me, that prayer really introduces this concept of like spiritual consent. And I feel like if I start my day with that prayer, 
I still hunt really hard. I, you know, every creature tries to preserve its life. That's part of being alive. And so, you know, I'm still going to like use all my wiliness to try and sneak up on a buck. I'm not going to wait for one to like walk right up to me. Um, but I have a faith that the, a buck that, that shows itself that I'm able to, to get a clean shot on will be that buck that day. Um, and I tell all my mm-hmm. students, because I, I guide a lot of people to shoot their first deer, um, and I tell them, like, if, if we're sitting together in that tree stand and we've been hunting hard for seven days and we've been trying this super hard and that deer walks in front of you broadside within your, your accurate range and you don't feel good about pulling that trigger, then don't pull the trigger like that. You don't have to, like, we're not hunting for subsistence here <laughs> and that, yeah. you know, it, you, you'll feel it. And, and I've never had a student just, just pass up that shot when it was just right. Um, yeah, but I feel it really seems like what you're asking yeah. is, yeah, for like some kind of self audit at the moment, it is such an intense, uh, you know, I, I deer hunt here in Minnesota. Uh, it, it's very different hunting in, um, I'm sure in the Vermont mountains, it's similar, more similar to my elk hunt, which was a lot of stalking and looking for tracks and trying to smell the elk or, or blow an elk call and, and find an elk. But in deer hunting in for woodland whitetails in Minnesota, I sit in a tree stand and wait, and that moment when the deer comes into range, usually, usually, actually, for me, it's multiple deer will come into shooting range. Mm-hmm. So there's a choice like to be Midwest. made right there. <laughs> yep. yeah. yeah, yeah, and then, and then, um, it, there is a moment because deer also they don't really scatter. I mean, they they're kind of slowly moving their way through the forest. I guess what you're saying and i think it would be a great practice for me to um to incorporate into my own hunting is a moment of self audit and uh, just to be in touch with myself and then i guess i mean what you're asking is to energetically also be in touch with that deer somehow yeah and i think it's interesting the the more I talk to a wide variety of, you know, so-called traditional hunters um, in North America, the more it seems to me that all of us who engage in the hunt um, have these experiences of like just really strong, like instinct and emotional knowledge in the moment when we're about to take a deer. And um, Mm -hmm. like, for example, I, uh, a couple years ago, I did my first shotgun deer hunt in Iowa where my parents still live. Um, and they're still vegetarian, but they let me butcher deer in their garage. I was very grateful. Um, <laughs> Good and, for them. Uh, yeah, they, they were very supportive. I was proud of them. Um, but um, so I was, I was out sitting in the street stand, as you describe, on a Midwestern farmland hunt. And um, I, I could tell that a deer was coming. Like, I forget whether I heard a sound or just saw a little bit of movement, but it, it really was not clear yet, like whether this was a buck or like what was, what was going on. Um, and actually I think I only had an antlerless permit cause it's really hard to get a buck tag in Iowa and, um, mm-hmm. this, but I just, before I could even truly see the deer before the situation was totally clear, I still had that shot of adrenaline through my system, but I knew yeah. it wasn't my deer. I, I was like, I don't think this is going to be the one. And I still got all set up and I, and I like made sure that my shotgun was at the ready and everything. Um, and it turned out that the deer was, was skylined. You took a line across the field where it wouldn't have been a safe shot. 
Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that definitely wasn't my deer. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, another one comes along and I just had a feeling that it was my deer. And yes, it was my deer. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, do you, do you find that you can have a, any kind of sense like that when you're out? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't, uh, I'm not a super, I, I've been, I've done a ton of, uh, bird hunting, and then I've only really started hunting deer like the last four years. And I shoot one every year. It's just, we have m- so many deer. I had um, my my first year, Murphy, this is going to be so different from your Vermont experience. <laughs> but I was sitting in the tree stand my first year. And the guy who hunts over the cornfield that uh, is adjacent to our, our, our forest land, he texted me, there are 50 deer in the cornfield right now. I'm about to shoot one. Get ready. They're coming your way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Dozens of deer. (laughs) So for me, I mean, I, I will say it's what I've, what I've dealt with for sure is grief, the grief of killing a deer and the grief, particularly hard for me. And this is too, I'd like to talk to you about this. Because on the one hand, I do not want to anthropomorphize the deer. The deer isn't human. And so one thing that was very hard for me that first year is I shot a doe that had two fawns with her. And I really struggled with that. Or, you know, have, have I take like what kind of bond do these fawns have with their mother? And every biologist you talk to is like, those fawns are going to be fine. You know, it's totally yeah. fine and legal to shoot does. In fact, we want, you know, there's they, they're in Minnesota, they're encouraging us to shoot does because the deer population is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But still, I, I I struggled with that. So on the one hand, I don't want to anthropomorphize the deer like, oh, it's like a mother, a human mother with children. On the other hand, I don't want to take away all um, emotion or even agency from the deer. And this is something I talked about a couple episodes ago with a Catholic priest who um, used similar language to you in that he said, uh, you know, he was talking about his latest deer hunt and the deer came into range but the he said i could tell the deer did not give himself to me and i did not Mm -hmm. take the shot Mm -hmm. and this priest he hasn't he has not shot a deer in in several years um because he says that a deer has not given itself to him Mm -hmm. so this is i'm like wow you're giving the deer a lot of agency and I don't know that deer have that much agency when they're walking through the woods, but but again, I want to be open to that and to being energetically connected to other living beings. So I can't. That's a long-winded answer to your question. I don't think I'm as good at that as you, and I think I should be better at it of paying more attention because it is you know your heart starts pounding. Um, you bring yeah. the gun up to your shoulder. It's it, you get a little bit of buck fever if it's a buck. I do, I know. And so, anyways, Definitely. it's it's probably something I need to work more at. Today's episode is brought to you by the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. They're working hard to make sure hunting and fishing are accessible to everyone. This is my friend Nicole Meyer, who does education and outreach at Vermont Fish and Wildlife. I took my friend Shane out turkey hunting for his first time, and. Uh, 
I was actually also three months pregnant. <laughs> I was there like, well, I might uh, might have some morning sickness, but we're going to shoot a turkey today. Either way. <laughs> Nicole is so cool. Anyway, speaking of going hunting for the first time, did you know that in 2020, Vermont had its first novice season for deer hunting? Novice season? Yeah, it's a special weekend when you can go out hunting with a mentor if you've never held a deer hunting license before. And it's before the regular rifle season, so the deer are more relaxed, they're easier to find, it's just way easier. You can get your novice season hunting tags at the Vermont Fish and Wildlife website. They'll be having the first novice turkey season this spring. Ooh, and then you can find a cool turkey hunting mentor like Nicole. So he's like, all right, well, why are we on the edge of this field? Like, well, because I see turkeys in this field, so it made sense to me. Okay, well, why are we in total camo? Like, oh, turkeys have really good eyesight, so we need to be completely invisible to them and not moving on. Oh, okay. And we heard a gobble that day, and he was like, what was that sound? That was a gobble. Like, that's what we are trying to hear. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be an expert, A+, plus, you know, one of these guys you see on TV that's that's shooting a deer every day. You know, you just have to know a little bit more than the person that you're taking out. The new novice hunting seasons are one of the many ways Vermont Fish and Wildlife are making the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation accessible to everyone. They've got free online hunter safety courses, online deer and turkey registration, and their very own podcast. It's all at www.vtfishandwildlife.com. It's, it's so interesting, the, the issues that you bring up about anthropomorphization, for sure. Um, because, yeah, like deer aren't human and they do live really different lives. And in, in my worldview, the way that I think of it, like, I do think that deer are people. Like, you know, I think okay. that my landmate's dog is a person. I think that, like, the tree is a person. Like, it's, it's sort of that animist um, attitude that, like, each, each being has a spirit or has a soul or whatever you want to call it, a personhood. Um, and yeah, how do we value that? Cause it, the act of taking a deer's life becomes a much more consequential one. If we acknowledge that level of personhood and spirit in our prey, mm-hmm. but I think that it becomes a much more potentially transformative one for us in our spiritual journey. If we acknowledge that, because we then it it demands of us that we be worthy of that. You know, if I'm going to take Mm. a deer's life and use it to feed my household, then I need to subsequently live my life and that has been fed and nourished on that body in a way that is deeply authentic and deeply in service of good in the world or else like there's no excuse for me choosing that way to acquire my food. I should just grow more in my garden, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that that spirit piece, I think it's scary for some people to connect to that or think about it that way, because it actually challenges us and calls us to a lot more like self inquiry about what we're doing, but I think it can be really powerful. Oh, tell me what, then what relationship do you have with the deer after you've killed the deer? Like what, what? Do you have rituals around the butchery, the eating? Do, uh, do you is do you have an ongoing relationship with that deer after the death of the deer? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, and um, I mean, 
in the immediate time after I've killed the deer, you know, once I've uh, recovered the body, um, I always, you know, kneel down and lay my hands on it once I've, you know, made sure it's really dead. Um, and, um, and really just like feel the warmth in its body and, and the like kinship. And, you know, when you've just killed a deer, it still looks like it could jump up and run away or, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, so yeah. it's like really be with <laughs> no, the body. I, no, in that I, state. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And really like let that sink in for myself. And, um, I have a couple of death songs that I sing to deer that I kill or goats that I butcher, um, hmm. to kind of sing their spirit through, because I feel like there is. I feel like death is not a moment. Uh, it's a, it's a like process that has different phases. Um, it's not just a split second in my mind. Um, and that, that impression has definitely been strengthened by the goat harvests that we do in the hunting class. We, because Vermont does not have very many deer, we learn about butchering on goats. Um, and, and we kill mm-hmm. them like right there in our lap. Um, so we're very close with the death and, and ushering through the death of that goat. And, and it's been my observation that it's like a whole process. It's not a split second. Um, and I believe that that process continues also after, you know, medical death, uh, you know, after the heart has stopped beating or, or whatever. Um, and, and that there is a process of, like spiritual substance, one might call it soul in the tradition, Christian tradition, but like spiritual substance that like comes out of that animal and just sort of like spreads out kind of like a shock wave, like into all of the things mm. all around in the environment and kind of like goes back and gets reabsorbed into the earth and the trees and the people who happen to be there. Um, and I think that that can mm. be, that can be part of the kind of like the high of hunting is that you are, you're next to this energy release and it gets absorbed into your, your energy body as well. Um, and it can bring up all kinds of emotions. You know, some of us cry, some of us like laugh, like there's lots of different reactions to grief. Um, but we're taking in some of that energy of the deer and then we're continuing to take in that energy as we eat the meat and tan the hide and, and all of those things. Um, so I'd say my relationship to the deer beyond that moment um, is to try and use as many of the parts as I can. I, I definitely have lots more to learn on that. I, I haven't figured out how to like preserve sinew for sewing and all of these things, but, um, you know, I make bone broth with the bones and I tan the hide and I usually bury the skull and then dig it up a few years later as sort of a European mount, um, object to, mm-hmm. to have around my place. Um, and then just, you know, eating the organs and, and all of the different parts, um, feels really important and not, not to waste anything. And then when I prepare that food, I always mention to the people I'm serving it to, um, a, a very brief story of that deer and be like, Oh yeah, this is the one that I shot in the Iowa cornfield and then made the entire deer into jerky and took on a big canoe trip and there's a bit left over and that's what we're eating today, you know? Hmm. Um, and, um, to tell that story and, and to say thank you when it's served feels, um, important as well. Um, and then I do have a whole process of, of kind of communicating with the spirit of that dead animal a little bit beyond if you want to talk about that too. Yeah. I, I mean, really, that's really what I'm interested in. Yes. Is you, <laughs> is you're posthumously communicating with the spirit of the deer. Uh, that's fascinating to me. And I think will be challenging to a lot of people, you know, to, to think to to hear that so yes i'd love for you to explain that a little bit 
Yeah. Um, so I am trained in a technique which I call trance or spirit journey. Um, it's called many different things in many different traditions. Uh, a lot of new agey people call it shamanism. Um, but I've been told that that word is, uh, it's been requested by the Siberian tribe, tribe that that word language comes from, that that word not be used by people who aren't part of that tribe uh, for that sort of practice. So I don't hmm. use that word. Um, but uh, it's also very present in the European tradition under names that we don't recognize as being like exotic and exciting in the same way that we like think of when we use a word like shamanism, you know, so like um, in the Jungian psychology tradition, there's a practice called active imagination that is basically the same mm -hmm, thing. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And um, there's different modern schools of psychology that use this kind of thing, the, the internal family systems um program uses a lot of that too and then i think there's a lot of the christian mystics you know who i studied in my medieval studies uh degree uh, like julian of norwich and hildegard von biggen like those people were always having like visions mm -hmm. of christ that came and told them things and stuff like that and um that's that's actually i think i believe the same spiritual technology being present across cultures um that i'm using in my practice with the deer um hmm. so yeah trance work or spirit journey is, is what I call it. And, um, I, you know, will go through a, a, a process that I've been trained in and learned to really like center and ground myself and, um, send my spirit on a journey where it can interact with other spirits that may not necessarily have um, a physical home anymore, including the spirits of the dead. And I, I will visualize myself going, you know, down a certain path and going, you know, there's a, there's a geography to the, the imaginal world that I journey in the spirit world that okay. I journey in. Um, so I'll like go the same way every time. And there's a place where I meet up with dead deer and um, <laughs> I will, hmm. I will go to this field and I will call to them and be like, Hey, I'd love to speak with you. And um, I've always experienced that the deer or the goat or whoever um, shows up and the main question that it's my goal of asking is to say, how can I, what can I do for you? What service uh, or gift can I give to you? You're now in this other world. You're in the realm of the dead. Um, and because I'm not Christian, I don't have a concept about heaven or hell. It's just like a neutral world of the dead. Um, okay. And, um, and, you know, you don't have a physical body anymore. What can I do as someone who still has a physical body and a body that's being nourished by your physical body? What can I do in the world um, as, as like a gift and a gratitude and a thank you and a reci reciprocity with you? Um, and the deer tell me all kinds of like surprising things that I didn't Yeah, I'd love to hear like what kind of, <laughs> what kind of requests do they have? Do they have? Um, I can share a few that really stand out. Um the, the first deer that I ever killed um, on my hunting mentor's farm down in North Carolina, a uh, six-point buck, um, he, I, I did this whole thing like after I got home because my hunting mentor is not uh, a woo-woo person like I am, and I, I wasn't really open with him about that part of my hunting life yet. I am now, but... Right, um, right, right. And um, I did the journey after I got home, and uh, that buck told me that I should teach other people to hunt in this way. And hmm. right, you know, to you talking to me now, after I've been making my, my, like living as a hunting instructor for seven years, that sounds really logical. But at the time there was like zero context for this. I was like a mostly vegetarian person right. 
who had shot one deer, had no idea really what I was doing beyond that. Um, and like, didn't have my own teaching business. I was just working as a wilderness guide for other companies. And like, that none of that actually made sense at the time I was told it. And, and yet it did all come true. It took a couple of years, but um, that path opened up and, and, you know, the way, as the Quakers say, the way opened for me um, in that journey, I, mm-hmm. I did not set out to become a professional hunting instructor. It just kind of swirled around me until that was my reality. Um, so that was one. And um, another one was a five point buck that I shot on the same farm in another year. Um, and I, that hunt was um, right after I had been out to Standing Rock in 2016. The Standing Rock uh, actions were happening to protect the water up in North Dakota. And um, I knew I was going back there. I'd come back because I had a hunting client that I had to take hunting and I, and I needed to like regroup and get some winter gear and all of that. Um, but I had an intention to go back for six or seven weeks in the deep winter, which I did. And so I shot this deer like in between those two visits and the deer just really spontaneously told me that it was going to act as my guardian when I was at Standing Rock again and that it would be there Hmm. um, energetically protecting me. And I can think of like the the Harry Potter Patronus kind of energy or something like that, just like spirit being that's with you. Um, And I really, I really felt it when I was on the front lines at Standing Rock. And that was probably the most humbling thing that I've been told by deer because it's like, man, how freaking generous are you? If someone comes and shoots you dead, eats you up, and then you're like, I'm going to be your guardian now. Like that just, I was very humbled by that. Um, and that like mm. wider perspective that it can be held by the dead. Um, and there just to get a little geographic, um, variety in there, I, I led another hunt in Northern Virginia, which I have a relationship with a farm down there. And I take folks down there to shoot their first deer sometimes. And, um, we, uh, one of my, my students got a doe there and, um, the message that I got really strongly from that doe, um, was that they wanted us, the, the, the place it's in, um, Loudoun County, which is like the exurbs of DC. It's like, uh, there's still some farmland, but there's a lot of McMansions popping up everywhere and sort of development is closing in on all sides and the land is getting less wild. And, um, the, the message that I got from that deer was that they wanted us to keep coming back and hunting there because death by rifle from a very like intentional and respectful hunter or huntress, um, seemed better to them than the slow death of just being squeezed out of their habitat and killed by cars on the road Mm. with no intention. Mm. And that meant a lot in that moment because that had been a deer with two fawns. Uh, doe with two fawns, uh, okay. you know, who are okay. six months old. And yeah. um, my huntress student shot her. And I don't think we really knew that those fawns were there at the moment that we shot her, but she had come ahead and they, those two were behind. And after yeah. we shot her, you know, it was a very good shot. She she fell immediately and was still. And um, then we we sat there, you know, waiting. Even when it's a very good shot, we always do a waiting period in case uh, sure. the animal was yep. fully bled out yet. And, um, the two fawns came up behind us where we were sitting against an oak tree and like circled around the back and they were so Oh my curious. gosh. It's such a horrible feeling. Scary yeah. at all. You know, it wasn't Tony. It sounds like it would be. Wasn't it? But, oh, but they, oh my gosh. they were so curious about us and they circled around and one of them came within 10 yards of us. 
And it just was like mm. sniffing around and trying to figure out what we were. And we were being very, very still. And they didn't go over and sniff at their mom. They didn't investigate that. They eventually okay. just like caught up with the rest of the 11 deer in that herd. Um, and I, you know, I knew in my mind that they were, um, that they were fine to survive biologically, especially down there in the yeah. warm South. Um, and I didn't feel any kind of anger or grief from them. I don't, I didn't think they'd really like figured out what, it, that their mom was gone yet, but, um, yeah, yeah. but it felt almost like a forgiveness. And then to, to go in that spirit journey and speak with that deer, I felt like she was speaking for her young when she said, you know, you can come hmm. back here and keep culling this herd because there's no space for us. And like one of the fields where the deer hang out every morning right next to where we hunt is like being developed this year unless coronavirus has disrupted it um, as a development with lots of big mansions. So it's really, it's mm -hmm. really squeezing mm -hmm. in there and it put it in perspective for me. And I think if I'd shot a doe with two fawns in another context or with less ability to, um, to dialogue about that in a spiritual way, it, it would have maybe felt bad, but in that situation, it actually didn't feel bad. Hmm. That's amazing. You know, there, you, you're probably familiar with the, um, in the Christian tradition, there's both in the, in the, there's an Italian version with St. Eustace and then uh, a French version with St. Hubert in which it's kind of seems like it was probably conflated, you know, these, the, the a very similar story in which they're, um, the, the hunter is out hunting. St. Hubert is out hunting after his wife and children have died and he's committed his life to being a hunter. And then a stag comes and speaks to him while the stag, there's like a glowing cross between the stag's antlers and he falls on his face and, and the stag, you know, tells him to, to go find this guy who's going to become his mentor. And then he's going to go into, you know, monastic service with this other guy but the stag also articulates like the very first ethics of hunting and how to be an ethical hunter wow so I've there's even in the christian the story that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah yeah the yeah the first it's like before uh boone and crockett there was the this talking stag and the the eighth uh -huh. century France who would tell St. Hubert, you know, take a clean shot. And it's, it's a very, a, a very simple primitive, but the first, you know, hunting ethic, I think. Mm -hmm. So even in the Christian tradition, there is a history of a deer talking to a human. Um, and so that I, that's interesting. I, I really appreciate that uh, you sharing that, um, those stories, I think they're super helpful to me because I still do try to, one of the things I struggle with is as, you know, as a Christian and Christianity is a religion of peace. I mean, theoretically it's a religion of peace. And yet I'm, I take part in this ultimately bloody, violent, you know, uh, uh, endeavor of hunting where it causes death. I'm causing death of another creature. Any way I can, anything I can add to my toolkit to be more respectful, more um, cognizant of the life that's given by that animal for for you know the life of my family and eating and and it's I'm quite honestly, I mean to be totally candid for my enjoyment. There's nothing in the world I like doing more than hunting. 
So that yeah, animal is giving think, itself up for my for my pleasure, even. I think that that's true, and I don't think that there's essentially anything wrong with that as long as we're doing it in right relationship, and we are doing that mm-hmm. like self audit, as you called it, and making sure that we're doing it in an aligned way. And and I think it's important too that we don't just go out and hunt during rifle season and then like support causes that destroy habitat the rest of the year, you know, or like, like work at some company that's like cutting down all the forests or something like that. There needs to be a wider engagement with the stewardship of the habitat that we all share. Um, and making sure that the deer have a place to thrive in there too. And a lot of the modern conservation movement has really leaned into that, but I'm not sure that all individual hunters do. No, definitely not. I would think in your community, the circles you travel in, that you would be an outlier, not just not just the transcendental meditation vegetarians with whom you were, you know, <laughs> by whom you were raised. Definitely not. But even either, in yeah. <laughs> right, but even in the more you know radical liberal queer communities, I would think you'd have to be. You must be an apologist for hunting because it, I'm. I'm guessing. I mean. There's there's less people hunting even in my circles, and my circles is like the traditional suburban white male guy who goes out hunting, and less and less even people I know hunt. I would think in your circles, it, it's you're in the extreme minority, and you must spend some time explaining why you do why you do what you do. Is that accurate? Um, I definitely have a few of those encounters, but not as many as you would think. Um, I think I would have a lot more of them if I lived in a city, but I live in a rural place Mm -hmm. where people see a deer all the time and the deer at their gardens and the deer run across the road. And like, um, it's a part of our lives and the feedback that I get a lot, which I can't, I can never make up my mind about whether it's a compliment or whether it's disturbing, (laughs) but, um, the feedback that I get constantly is like, Oh, Murphy, the way you hunt is really beautiful. I support the way you hunt, but the way almost everyone else hunts yeah. is really not okay. And yeah, I yeah. find that really interesting um, because I do think that there is probably more in general in broad strokes, there's probably more in common between hunters um, with how most of us approach taking game. Like when, whenever I'm like talking to like a traditional white man hunter and and if, if I can, like, ask him the right questions and, and he feels comfortable and, and yeah. has his guard down around me, like, he'll admit to all kinds of emotional experiences of hunting and, like, having grief about his kill and all these things that sound totally familiar to me. Um, but right, probably the right. way that he's talking about it at the local, you know, gas station or with his buddies or the way that folks are talking about it on hunting TV shows and things like that, they don't admit that kind of emotional experience as a part of it because it's not seen as part of the masculine archetype. And I think if people would get over themselves and like talk about their whole life and not try to hide this part of the emotional experience, then I don't think that the like radical liberal queer folks that you're, you're referencing would feel that animosity towards hunting that can sometimes be Mm -hmm, there because mm -hmm. they don't feel it around me. For the most part, I get similar comments from people around firearms. People are like, "I'm totally anti-gun, except you. I'm I'm okay with you having a gun. 
because uh-huh. you hunt and you're you're like a responsible gun owner, but I don't like any other gun owners. And I think uh-huh. like every guy I hunt with, all the, all the guys I hunt with, even the like the right wing Trumper guys and the majority of the guys I hunt with are that. They're real red state evangelical Christian guys. They all have gun safes and they all have trigger locks and they're all super, you know, we when we hit the field to hunt pheasants and there's 10 hunters out there and 12 dogs, like everyone's very careful with their firearm and people are very responsible gun owners, right? But that's, of course, not the, the experience I think people have in popular culture um, or through the media. So Yeah, well, I think the most responsible hunters and gun, honer, gun owners are like the ones who are also the quietest about it. Um, yeah. People who like are just like really wanting everyone to know that they have a gun and they're a hunter are usually not the ones who are doing it the best way, <laughs> right, unfortunately. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, before we go, I would love for you to introduce us to, I know you have a special relationship with a couple female huntress deities. Would you, yeah. would you kind of give us a little lesson or introduce us to one of those and bring, bring that deity into our consciousness? Yeah. Oh gosh. Choose, and do I have to choose this one or can I do two? I mean, do it. Take this wherever you want to take it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the, the two main hunting deities that I work with are Artemis and Scavi. And almost everyone has heard of Artemis, the Greek um, young female goddess of the forest, uh, you know, powerful archer, hunter, um, guardian of the young creatures and the young girls in the culture. Um, You know, many of us have heard uh, some of her myths and uh, she's still very alive in the Western psyche. And um, so I'm not going to take as much time telling about her, but I think that she's the entry point for a lot of women, a, a lot of people mm-hmm. like when I was growing up I, I read that myth and I was like oh that's me I can see myself in this like wild maiden of the woods in a way that I can't see myself in like Zeus's wife and you know things like that <laughs> so um so she is a, a starting point for a lot of people and invites people into that work um you know hearing her myths and just resonating with that archetype and um the other one that I work with is Skadi which is spelled S-K-A-D-H-I or D-I, depending on how you're transliterating the medieval letter that isn't in our language anymore. Um, but mm-hmm. it's like a T-H sound, like a the Skavi. And um, she is a Norse deity from Northern Europe. And um, she she's technically a giantess, but she marries into the, the gods who are similar beings to the giants. Okay. Um, and, and this becomes a goddess. And she is the deity of hunting and winter and snow and mountains and skis and archery and basically all the best things in the world, Um, all the things that make my life worth living. And um, she has a very spunky myth, um, which is about the gods have killed her father, um, a, a giant, and she comes to avenge him. And um, they are so intimidated by what a great warrior she is. They they ask if they can like give her a gift instead of like fighting with her. Um, and they they give her a couple of different gifts. So one is to to choose a, hu- a husband from among their number, and that's how she becomes a goddess. Um, so she hmm. is a archetype of real female strength, agency, demanding of justice, 
Um, and then also just that, that wild attunement with the forest and the hunt. Um, mm-hmm. so both of them have really beautiful myths if people want to read more about them. And, uh, I definitely consider both my hunting work and my, my teaching of hunting to be in service of those deities. Um, that's, that's a fantastic. A with them. Well, thank you. That's, I, we've covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate it. Um, People can find you at mountainsongexpeditions.com and there's, you know, you've got uh, all your different um, camps and your teachings and um, intro to hunting, which is, I think it's so important what you're doing because, you know, in the, even in the traditional hunting community, it's everyone's talking about the three, uh, you know, the R3 movement of recruiting, mm-hmm. uh, retaining and reactivating hunters and how few people are hunting these days. So you're just really on the front lines of getting, you know, a non-traditional group into hunting, which is, I could not be more um, excited about what you're doing and happy that you're doing it. And you're probably, because of COVID, you're having to rethink your fall schedule classes and stuff kind of taken the year off from in-person classes because usually more than half my students come from out of state and I just don't feel like it's ethical to encourage interstate travel at the moment. Um, But I am still offering some of my spirituality-based classes online um, and we'll see how how this pandemic develops and what's safe and possible in the future. But it's... And and where will you personally be hunting this fall? Um, I will definitely be hunting in Vermont. Um, I have a wonderful invite mm-hmm. for a 80 acre property with uh, apple orchards and open fields, which is uh, a oh, good nice. spot for here in Vermont. Um, and also I, I'm going to be mentoring my landmate as a new hunter. Vermont has a new, um, like brand new hunters, even if they're adults can hunt on youth weekend now, basically it's a new program. Mm, yeah. Like an apprentice hunter apprentice thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we'll probably be hunting at another property together that weekend. Um, and I might go over to Maine uh, if virus levels are still low in both places and it feels safe because um, my family lives on an island out there that is crawling with deer this year. So it'd be tempting to head over there as well. But we'll see. Awesome. Well, good luck. And um, I think I, you know, I'll post in the show notes the, the link to your website and. Um, social media a little bit are you on social media a little bit um yep i've got facebook mostly okay. facebook account for mountain expeditions and also have my own podcast the hunters right. podcast which doesn't have a ton of episodes but the yes ones we have that's are right yes i've listened they're really well produced they have like music and animals calling in the background and <laughs> they sound great it's really good stuff Well, Murphy, thank you so much. I'm really, really grateful that you joined me for this hour. And it was just a great conversation. I hope we can do it uh, down the road sometime. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tony. It was a pleasure talking to you. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, You can check out more of Tony's interviews at the Reverend Hunter podcast. His episode with Jill Carroll interviews a woman who is a scholar of world religions and has also been an avid bird hunter her whole life, Um, was partly taught to hunt by her mother in the American South when she was young. Um, It's a pretty cool, cool story. That might be a good one to check out if you want to hear more from Tony. We've got 
a really great episode coming up, an interview that I did last year before the pandemic. Um, and I think people are going to really get a lot out of her story. And um, she shares just very honestly and openly and vulnerably about her, her whole process of her hunt in 2019. It's a super cool story. Yeah, and we'll get that out to you soon, like sometime sooner than two years from now. Yay! Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like literally almost done. We're going to get it to you soon. <laughs> okay, I guess it's time for the credits. Credits! Thanks again to Tony for letting us cross-post this episode. The Huntress Podcast is a production of Mountain Song Expeditions, which is Murphy's Wilderness School in Vermont. And you can learn all about all of their hunting classes at mountainsongexpeditions.com. We've even been offering some Zoom-based classes during the pandemic, which you can attend from anywhere. Who knew that you can learn hunting over Zoom? It's kind of weird, but it's been working pretty well. Our theme music is composed by Keith Murphy and performed by Yazi Zeichner and Ari Erlbaum. That's you over there. <laughs> if you liked today's episode, we'd love it if you could rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the podcast, spread the word to your friends. Uh, that really helps. And since our episodes are occasional, it, subscribing is really the best way to not miss them when we do post them. If we do, you know, have another two-year break or something like that, if you're subscribed, then it'll jump to the top of your list and you'll get to see when we do post. Um, also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at hunterspodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you'd like to hear more of, and we might even feature your question on a future episode. Until next time... May your arrows fly true. Hey, R, you know what else is new in my life? I have a dog. Here's what that sounds like. Good boy. Good boy. Yes, you're such a good boy. We're working on basic obedience, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll get to some uh, collaborative hunting work. I think it'll be really fun. What do you think, Clyde? Would that be fun? Are you into that? Would that be fun? You want to make a noise? You want to make a noise? No, you just want to lick my face. Oh, hello. Good boy. So, love to you all from Clyde.